Welcome back to another episode of the Same 24 Hours Podcast. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're tuning in. And I've been doing this for a while now, you guys. I just realized that. (laughs) It's been a minute. It has been a minute. So if you're enjoying the content, please do go rate and subscribe and share the podcast with people you love. There's big people coming on soon, big uh, fun and adventure and lots of great stories in the pipeline. So I definitely um, want you guys to tune in um, over the holiday season when people take a break. I tend to really get motivated and there's going to be a lot of content coming out. So you don't want to miss anything. So click that subscribe button. Give me a five-star rating. It really does help. So today... We're going on to the show with Adam Davidson. So Adam is the co-founder and CEO of 3 Uncanny 4 Productions, but he's been part of the podcast industry almost as long as it has existed. So like as long as blogs have existed, Adam has been part of podcasts. He co-founded NPR's Planet Money and led the show for its first several years and has served as a senior podcast strategy advisor to the leadership of NPR, the New York Times, and the New Yorker magazine. He has co-created and co-hosted the Gimlet Media podcast, Surprisingly Awesome, with Academy Award-winning writer and director Adam McKay, which I'm so bummed I did not talk to him about this. Adam McKay directed The Big Short, which is like my husband's flippin' favorite movie. I'm gonna have to just dial Adam back and <laughs> be like, hey, I got one more question for you. Um, but Adam's an accomplished journalist. Clearly, he's a contributing writer to The New Yorker and was previously an economics writer for The New York Times Magazine. He served as NPR's international business and economics correspondent, among other things. He has also received a Peabody Award. No big deal. Peabody, DuPont Columbia Award, and a Polk Award. His work has appeared in The Atlantic, Harper's, GQ, and Rolling Stone. So today, what are we talking about with Adam? He has a podcast called The Passion Economy and a new book, The Passion Economy. And we talk about where the economy meets passion, meets us growing, meets us changing, pivoting, becoming who we want to be in this world and in this economy and take charge of our lives. He has a really great um, analysis of all of this in his book. I really do love his podcast as well, The Passion Economy. So check that out. And I hope you all enjoy this show with Adam Davidson. Hi, and welcome to the Same 24 Hours podcast. I'm Meredith Atwood, author of the book, The Year of No Nonsense. I'm a former attorney turned writer, speaker, and Ironman triathlete. Although right now, all I really like to do is lift weights. We all have the same 24 hours, but it's what we do in those hours that leads to our greatest health, happiness, and success. It's my goal to crack the code on a life of less nonsense so we can all make the most of our 24 hours. So let's get started. So I tell you, I only put ads for things, products, people, and programs that I believe in. I ran this podcast for over two and a half years without a single ad. So when I bring you something, it's because I loves it. So today I'm talking about free skincare, F-R-E skincare. This 
skincare is amazing. It was offered for, for me to try a few months ago. Um, actually, it's been six months now. And I loved it. Absolutely loved it. It was really beautiful. It smelled great. <laughs> it made my skin awesome. I really am a big fan. So free skincare is scientifically formulated to combat sweat-induced skin damage. So this is for people who work out and sweat, and it promotes a clear, healthy complexion, fights breakouts, vegan ingredients, and they have a 30-day guarantee. So you can try it, and if you don't love it, they'll take it back. And there's no hassles. That's it. So go to freeskincare.com, F-R-E, skincare.com. Use the code SWIMBIKEMOM, SWIMBIKEMOM, and you will save all sorts of amounts. It depends on a random day. You'll probably get 25% off if they're running a special and you use my code. You can get as much as 43% off. Like right now, they have a special going on for Halloween. This podcast may come slightly after Halloween. Um, or way after Halloween, depending on when you're listening. So just check it out, enter the code and you will get something off. So freeskincare.com, huge fan and get on your way to having the beautiful skin that you know you want. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the same 24 hours podcast. I'm your host, Meredith Atwood. Super excited about our guest today. Adam Davidson is here. Hello, Adam. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. So Adam said that he's got some construction at his house. So every time we hear a hammer, someone gets $5. (laughs) We can make a game out of it. Um, So I think I, I just adore, first off, I adore your work. I have for many years and really loving your new podcast. And I think you are such a timely, timely podcast and a timely guest with what is going on. So your podcast talks about regular people who figured out how to thrive in an economy that has, that feels stacked against us and, and sort of is at the moment. So how did you come up with that idea to focus on? Cause I know as a journalist, you've spent a lot of time learning the problems, (laughs) seeing the issues, but how did you decide to focus on what can be done versus kind of what some of the issues are? Sure. Well, yeah, I was, I was a international business correspondent for national public radio. And then I created planet money at NPR. And then I became an economics writer at the New York times. And then at the New Yorker and much of my career has focused on terrible, terrible things in the economy. Right. Um, um, and, and not just in the U.S. I covered the war in Iraq, but as an economics reporter and, and among other things that happened in Iraq, there was, you know, profound economic crisis. Um, and I became very sensitive to the idea that we were going through massive change that, um, you know, the rise of China, the rise of global trade, outsourcing, the rise of technology, you know, and these are today sort of obvious. I mean, it's in the air. We all know this. But in the early 2000s, these were not part of the national conversation in the way they are now. It still felt like a new idea. And um, and I and it, it just really hit me that, boy, people do not understand that much of the U.S. economy and, and the European economies were built around um, repetition, around standardization, around mass production, around a bunch of things that for a solid hundred years, 
meant a lot of people could make a lot of money and inc- not just rich people, but, but even more so poor people, working people um, that, you know, if Procter and Gamble wanted to get rich, if General Motors wanted to get rich, they had to make a whole bunch of other people, at least middle-class. And, um, and then because of outsourcing, because of automation, um, because of some other transformations, that's not the case. Mark Zuckerberg does not need to make millions of people middle-class. He needs to make a few hundred or a few thousand people wildly rich, but he doesn't really need a lot of worker bees. And that transformation has a lot of negative impact. It, it's the cause of rising um, income inequality, wealth stagnation. Um, you know, I would argue it's it's part of the cause of rising authoritarian populist uh, views both in the U.S. and elsewhere. Um, you know, when 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 a when people in their bones don't feel like the system is going to work for them, you know, some people put on their their work shoot boots and get to work, but other people want to look for people to blame, and whether that's immigrants or whoever, you know, they blame others, and and they want a strong man who's just going to make everything great again. Um, so. I looked at it all through this negative lens, which is a real lens. I don't want to make it sound right. like it's not real. Right. But then along that journey, I kept bumping into these people who sort of bucked the trend. Uh, and, you know, these were not Silicon Valley billionaires. These were not Wall Street titans. These were regular folks, an accountant in South Carolina, somebody who makes pencils in New Jersey, somebody who... Yes, so- and that episode was fascinating, by the way. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> the pencil episode. Yeah, I really enjoyed it myself. Um, so where I'm like, wait, they're doing something different. They're figuring something out about how the economy works. That's And, and it took me a, an embarrassingly long time, like years, <laughs> to kind of clue in to these are two sides of the same coin, that all of us have access to those same tools of global trade, automation, the internet. And what that one thing that can allow is massive, unimaginable scale. You know, there's people who say Facebook is the most successful thing ever. No thing, no food product, no clothing, no device has ever reached 2 billion people, you know, like more than a quarter of the people alive. So scale can be scalier than ever and serve the needs of a relatively tiny group of people and their shareholders, but scale, but there's also this other option, which is intimacy. And that's also a new option. And that's available to, I want to say all of us or most of us where we can figure out, not necessarily how am I going to beat Facebook and create a new global juggernaut, but what is my thing? What is my special um, opportunity where I can, um, find an audience, even if that audience is thinly spread all over the globe, and the audience that most values what I alone can provide them. And that is the other opportunity available now. It takes work, it takes imagination, it takes hustle. But, you know, at first it felt like, oh, there's a few people figured this out. But now that I've been doing this for a few years, it's so many people have figured this out and it really is available um, to, again, I don't know that I want to say everybody, but a lot more people. And certainly if people are like taking the time to listen to podcasts 
and trying to figure out how they can improve themselves, then it's available to them. You know, right. It, right. Well, one of the things that I love that you point out is that part of this new economy and where people are being successful is they're sort of letting their weirdness come out or like their superpowers, letting your freak flag fly because that's where we're different. That's where we're individuals and that is where the superpower is. So how true does that ring and and yeah, how, how much, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry to, sorry to cut you off, but no, no, it's fine. let your freak flag fly. Like, uh, I mean, it just, Sometimes I think about the TV show Mad Men, where, you know, as, as just an example um, of a business where there is one guy who is allowed to have wild imagination and creativity. And then you just had several floors of worker bees, secretaries right. and craftspeople and bookkeepers. And, you know, you can imagine going to Procter & Gamble or General Motors or American Steel or U.S. Steel or, you know, pick your poison of major successful 20th century companies and saying, hey, I want to work for you, but I really want to do it in my own unique, special way. They'd say, no, shut up. You're going to learn the GE way. You're going to learn the Westinghouse way. And we built a whole kind of standardization model that started with education. I mean, before 1900, fewer than 10% of Americans even graduated high school. And colleges and universities were just an obscure thing for very few people. Um, even by 1970, only 7% of Americans had a BA. That was, oh, and, wow. and, but this idea that, you know, the, the development of a, of universal high school, then the development of trade schools and the idea, um, that your goal was to get some external authority to give you a, a certificate, a badge. I'm now a certified public accountant. That starts in 1896. I'm now a licensed electrician. I'm now, uh, you know, which is really saying whatever I got going on inside of me, whatever weird things that make me weird, forget it. Cause I have done the work to become standardized and to earn this commodity badge that I'm you can hire me or a hundred people just like me. Cause we've all got the same training, the same. And there are advantages to that. I don't want to dismiss that. And I just moved into a new house. I would kill for a hundred licensed electricians right now because <laughs> um, so I, 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 I don't want to say that that's a terrible system or it has right. to completely eliminate, but the 20th century was about hiding who you were so that right. you could, show a standard face to the world. And it's and also worth noting that like the, you know, the licensed electricians, there's some freaks there. They just love electricity, you know? Yes, I mean, yes, it, exactly. And like, so I think every profession has the weirdos in the profession. Cause I came from law. So I had a law degree, totally pushed down who I really was to do that by yeah. the way. Um, but there were always the freaks in the room who were like, I just love the law. I love everything. And where every lawyer looks at them like, what are you talking about? Because we right, all suppressed, right. you know, our freaks and our writer and, you know, creative outlet for the, and then there's the weirdos who are actually in the profession because they love it. Right. Exactly. <laughs> but for an electrician, I mean, I would want to see even more like, not just do I love electricity, but I love, you know, creating smart homes for new home right. buyers. Or I love um, helping disabled people have more access to modern amenities or whatever. Some even more specific 
category, just like with law. I feel like the friends, you know, I, I don't have to tell you that lawyers are, I think, famously the least happy <laughs> profession. But my friends who like being in the law tend to have a very specific thing they do that they really enjoy. Right. Um, and, and a specific kind of clientele where they feel they can make a difference. Um, and, and so you can, in these old professions, you can carve out that special that specialness, that weirdness. And freak flag doesn't necessarily mean, you know, it, it, it doesn't mean that everyone's going to look at you like a freak. It means right. that we're right. waving a flag, but the goal of waving the flag is maybe 99% of people look at that and say, what, what are you talking about? But 1% will look at it and say, that is what I've been looking for. That is what I need. Right. And, um, and it, and, because that's where the magic is, you know, if like thinking about the law, just as an example, and I read about this in my book, it's an obsession of mine is hourly billing. Nobody in the history of the world has been like, you know what? I'd love three and a half hours of a lawyer's time. <laughs> I really would love <laughs> the very fact that we bill law and accounting and other professional services by the hour is like an abdication of the whole conversation of value. And if I find the right lawyer who knows what I need, five minutes of their time might be all I need. If I have the wrong lawyer, I could spend 200 hours and they're never going to know right. what I need. Um, so so the, what, what you can do when you raise your freak flag and someone else sees it and says, oh, I've been looking for that flag. You're my person. You can have a conversation that's not cost plus. It's not all right, if I'm going to work 40 hours a week, this is how much I need to make. It's value. What is the value I am providing to you? And how is that value different from what anyone else can provide to you? And that's where the magic is. Because you, once you crack that, once you are creating something no one else can create, and you're finding an audience that wants that thing, you are now able to essentially charge much bigger margins because you are the whole logic of the 20th century standardized economy was um, pricing based on the least interested consumer. It's literally the official, the economists call it the indifferent, the point of indifference. Right. How much does the Snickers bar cost? It is not priced at the person who loves Snickers bars so much that they would pay $100. It's the person who's like, I got a buck. <laughs> There's a Snickers bar. I could kind of go either way. Ah, oh, what the heck? I'll get the Snickers bar. That is where 20th century standardized pricing is. That's why in certain applications, it's nice to have 100 standardized people or products because you can just say, all right, I'll just hire the cheapest ones since you're all the same. But when you're unique, what is the value that you're providing me? How do I articulate that value? And then how do I pay that value? It's a whole different conversation. Right. Right. And so the connection to like the freak flag, we'll just keep coming back to that, is really passion, right? It is when another synonym would be your passion. Like what lights your fire, what is unique about you, and lights your fire, maybe. Is that like a fair statement? Yeah, absolutely. And it's for yeah. several different reasons. I mean, part of it is um this is harder. It's certainly harder at first. I think once you kind of crack the nut then and you're in it, it it probably becomes easier eventually but the you know 
I don't think I'm offering like, hey, you could quit your job today and by Thursday, you're going to be living this new life and making a ton of money. Like it, it can take years, you know? I, I feel like I didn't really understand my unique value until I was in my late 30s. And um, it took a long time. Although once I figured it out, it's been, you know, I have made more money. I have had a lot more fun. Um, so, and right now, my, my expectation is that in the future, this will be less the case. But right now, you really do have to still buck some trends. You have to do things that maybe your parents will judge you for. Maybe other people <laughs> will judge you for. Because you know, I liken it, maybe that I don't know if this is a good analogy or not, but I, I spent a few years in the Middle East as a reporter, and I have a lot of friends who had arranged marriages. And that's a system that exists in much of the world still. And there are certain advantages. You're just handed someone at a certain age. Um, and, you know, you're, you're married sooner. I even have a friend who had an arranged marriage and he openly talks about how he and his wife just don't like each other, but it's not, <laughs> it would never occur to him to get divorced. And he's just sort of understands that's how things work. And, when I was in Iraq, when Iraq was opening, part of it opening, people were getting cell phones. Suddenly, young boys and, or teenage boys and girls, young adults were talking to each other, like without all their parents and cousins and aunts and uncles in the room. And they were sort of in the very early stages of imagining a world of dating. And now some Iraq, there had been dating in parts of Baghdad and stuff. I don't want to say no one did, but it was a new thing for a lot of people. And some of my friends there would ask me advice. And I thought of it as a similar thing. Like we're kind of shifting from an, a, a, an arranged marriage model of careers where sort of by happenstance, by whatever, by the time you're 21 or certainly 24, you're sort of on a path and that's pretty much your path. And to, you're going to have to have some bad breakups. You're going to have to date some awful people. You're going to have to go through some heartbreak. You're going to have to have some regrets. Like it's a messier right. process to find your passion. And that's why passion is so important. You, have, uh, you know, the biggest, the most important passion is a passion for finding your passion, if that makes right. sense. It totally um, does. And like the, the whole idea that you have to become conscious at some point, because otherwise, you know, we're raised by flawed people who raise us in a flawed government, a flawed system to go to work for the man and get your gold watch. And that's like how many of us were raised to think. And so at some point to change, like, do you find that people have to have a shift, like a mental shift? Or do you think, you know, crisis brings it on? Like, where is the change? Because I, I grew up, you you work for the man, you die. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, the end, you know, and I had a, I had a crisis. I had a change. And um, 10 I, years ago, I, you know, it, it pivoted. So what's been yeah, your experience? We're still in the early adopter phase of this, you know, so the old economy, it's obviously dying. Um, and, you know, I'm in journalism where it's very acute, but I know law firms are really struggling where they, you know, for a long time had this system, particularly the big law firms where like you go in as an associate right after law school, you're tortured for several years. It's utterly miserable, but you stay with it because one day you'll get to be the big partner who doesn't work that hard and gets to torture the young people. Right. And, and from what I've heard from friends, that system is breaking apart because the young people are like, I don't believe that's going to be there for me in 20 years. So why should I go through it now? 
every field practically. I mean, I think government, finance, health, there's certain highly regulated industries that are more protected, but even they are feeling it. But so we all know the old system is breaking. I think the issue is we haven't yet articulated that's the goal of this book, articulated what replaces it. So if if you think of, say, a farmer's kid in 1905, say, if, if that farmer's kid goes to his or her parents and says, I'm going to move to the city, I think I'm going to spend four years not working and get a college degree, because I have a feeling there's going to be this thing called engineering that's going to be a whole big like you can just, I mean, you know, this happened. It happened in my family. Like the parents saying, and then you don't have to go to 1905. I mean, this is, this conversation is happening today. It happened in 1980s, 1990s. Uh, the parents say, no, 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 you're going to forego not just four years for college. You're going to go forego eight years of earnings because people weren't even going to high school for some fantasy about what the future might hold. That's crazy. Look at your parents, look at your grandparents, your great-grandparents, your great-great-grandparents. They all did it this other way. And it took decades for us to just kind of take in that there's this thing called college and you actually leave the workforce when you're at your strongest and most energetic and most (laughs) pliable. And you, um, which is, you know, by certain logic, a crazy thing. But I grew up like you're going to college. And if I told my parents, no, no, I want to start working. They would have been furious. I think there's a similar mental and language thing we need as a society where we just come up with a way of talking about this so that we recognize there's not just a period up until 21. There's a period that probably will extend well into your 20s, maybe even into your 30s, where you are finding your match in this economy. And that's a hard process. And you know, similarly to dating, like in Iraq, just to overload this poor metaphor. Um, you know, I was there with a lot of journalists and people would break up and the Iraqis saw this as some massive tragedy. Like they'd never heard of breakups. And I'm like, no, no, that's just part of the whole mess. And so we have a whole new mess. It's a better mess. I would argue overall for most people or for a lot of people, but it's a new mass and we don't yet have a language or a way of talking about it, which is to say the people who figured it out are people like you and people like me who faced crisis, who for whatever reason, the old system just didn't satisfy. I don't know enough about your story, but, <laughs> um, you know, for me, there was no like acute crisis. It was just, I kept seeing possibilities and my bosses and the institutions I worked for just couldn't adapt to those. And that right. just eventually became so frustrating. I had to leave, but um, in a weird way, probably the worst luck in the world is to be 23 or something and thrive in the old system, you know, get a, get a gig at a law firm, you're thriving and thriving. And then at 45 or 50, I'm now 50. You don't want to figure this all out at 50. You're just a lot more tired. You're risk averse. You got a mortgage. Right. That's what I was going to ask you. Like where, what do you, what advice do you have for people who do start to figure it out at 50? Like my crisis came because I thought, oh my God, I still have 35 more years of doing this. I can't do this for 30. Like my crisis was just simple math. Like I'm 30, 60. No, I I can't. No, thanks. You know, that was my crisis. So what do you, what do you say for, to people who are in that situation? They're like, I cannot do this anymore. Um, I'm 50. And I don't want to, I should be more positive because I am 50. (laughs) 
I, I actually just made a major life change a year and a half. Yeah. I quit journalism and started a company and with a co-founder and I, it's a major change and it's exciting and hard. And, you know, in journalism, I think I was at a level where I was pretty confident I could just ride it out with a reasonable salary until I retire. And I now am CEO of a small company growing, but it's the kind of thing where either it'll work well or I might, it might collapse and I'll be 54 or 55 with a family and a mortgage and trying to reinvent myself. So I did voluntarily and enthusiastically make this change right before I turned 50. Um, I guess it, the, the, the advantage is, is, yeah, is the wisdom and the knowledge and, and part of there's this idea that people have of pain storming, like understanding what sucks and <laughs> sometimes using that to build businesses and build business ideas. I think what you do, what I do, which, you know, in, in our ways are helping guide people through this transition. I think that's a huge service that is also a real opportunity. Um, if you're in a profession and you, uh, one of the heroes of my book, Jason Blummer was an accountant who just hated being an accountant. He wasn't a particularly good accountant and he just studied what he hated about being an accountant. And that allowed him to create the mirror image that ended up being a very flourishing business. So I, I do think, look, I'm feeling a lot less energy than I had in my twenties. I am feeling like I have a wife and a kid and a house. Like I have burdens that I didn't have. So I'm not going to be willing to make almost no money for several years. So I am more risk averse, but I also know so much more and I have that wisdom. So yes, I do believe you can make this change at any point. And there are pros and cons, but I, I think there are a lot of pros to doing it in your 50s. So how is this particular climate right now, the economy, the pandemic, the social unrest, like all of it, how is this a positive or perhaps a birthing ground for finding your passion. Yeah. And again, want to acknowledge there's so much bad right now. I happen to be not just of the view that the president Trump is, 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 is corrupt, but also unbelievably incompetent. He's just, I've, I've spent several years reporting on his businesses and he's a terrible businessman who just, yes. <laughs> one rich. like, I think when you picture Trump, just picture a, callow rich kid who just keeps driving Ferraris into the wall, buying a new Ferrari. And everyone's like, Oh wow, that guy has a Ferrari. He must be a great right. driver. Um, so, and it'd be great. You know, if, if you can be born to somebody who gives you $400 million like that, I would recommend. That would, that. Let's do yeah. that. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Choose that option. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and I, I do think that there are major political forces that could benefit or hurt the you know the general middle class person. So I I want to acknowledge there's very real and big issues. That being said, for any individual there is great opportunity. The covid thing has been a disaster. There's been, you know, historically terrible leadership. I don't want to say oh but there's a great silver lining, but there is a tiny silver lining which is that what we're doing right now, this remote work has you know it it has sent us forward years, decades towards a distributed workforce. And, and that at the end of that, that is a major step 
towards the model I'm talking about, where you're able to be anywhere on earth and find your people anywhere else on earth. Um, I, I remember talking to a woman who was, she's a food stylist. So she was hired by glossy magazines or advertising firms. Like if they need that perfect image of an eggplant or a bowl of cereal, she's the expert in how to shoot it. And that was always an in-person job, which meant all of her work was in New York City. She's now, because of COVID, doing it all through Zoom, where you, you know she can say through Zoom, um, hey, yep, move the light over this way and spray some water on the eggplant or whatever it is you do. <laughs> and But now she's able to, on any given day, work with whoever values her the most, whoever needs right. her the most. And And when your market is much bigger, you're able to even more narrowly differentiate yourself. So uh, she's not doing this, but you know, I'm, I only do raw foods. That's my special. I really know how to do that. And now if someone wants to shoot raw foods beautifully, they have to call her because she's right. the master and she can do them, you know, spend the morning working with Paris and the evening working with New Zealand. And, you know, so though I, I think this trend is rapidly developing, there's a double-edged sword to that because uh, I think or a multi-edged sword, I guess. Um, the accidental inner contact is just a crucial part of developing skills. So once you are an established person, you know, it's kind of awesome to just sit in your home office and, and work with the world. But if you're developing yourself, you know, you, you look, then there's academic research about this. You know, how do you become a food stylist? You're probably just an assistant on a shoot and you saw something and you said something and someone said, Hey, you're pretty good. I want you to help me on this next shoot. So that accidental, I think we haven't figured out how to um, raise up the benefits of accidental contact. That's a side issue. But I think generally this has rapidly pushed us forward. I also think there clearly is a profound collapse of faith in institutions and existing systems. And that can manifest in very destructive ways where we fantasize about strongman authoritarians who can just force back some mythical past. But it also can manifest itself in positive ways where we demand new systems and we demand change. And, you know, I'd say the jury's out on where that is in ba on balance. But I do think in whatever field you're in, whatever industry you're in, this conversation is happening. They might think it's a different, they might call it a different name, but people are looking at the fundamental architecture of how we work and get paid for our work and live in this economy. And that, for some of us, is really good news. I mean, it, it, yeah. it's scary for those of us who who... Anyway, but yes, so those are the positives. I don't right. try to decide if those are like super positive or just a positive, <laughs> They're just fine. One star. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so one last question. What what kind of starting point, you know, someone's listening to this podcast, they're in a job they hate, they have responsibilities. Um, they're like, I don't have a passion. I don't know what I want to do. I certainly don't have a freak flag. Like what what do you want to leave someone with? Or what is maybe something in your book, The Passion Economy, that 
that you can kind of point to to say, eh, start here before you totally give up on and want to work for the man for the rest of your life. Right. So, so yes, I, th- I think, and th- this is when I start wondering if I should have chosen a different term, because I think one of the top things I hear is, well, I don't know what my passion is. Most of us don't. It's not mm-hmm. like you're not like on your 21st birthday given here. Here's a special box. Here's your, your passion. passion. <laughs> here's your passion. And to be totally honest, like if I met a 21 year old who's like, I know exactly what I want to do. That might be the person I'm most worried about because it, right. it, it um, you crazy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you're going to cut yourself off from a lot of opportunity. I think a passion is a combination of external things. You know, I love fountain pens. I love fast cars. Internal characteristics. I'm really social. I'm really funny. I'm really shy. I'm really, I like working on my own. I'm good with numbers. I'm bad with numbers. It's it's a combination of things and you don't have to be the best at any of them. You just, that combination of like external things, internal characteristics, and then explicit skills. So it's still good to be a CPA, to a certified public accountant. It's still good in a certain context to be a lawyer if it's just not enough. Like you want to marry that credential. So, so skills, personality traits, characteristics, and external passions. It's some combination of that. For some people I've learned, it's the internal stuff that really matters. Like Jason Blummer, just using that example, he loves helping people. He honestly could have been a minister. He could have been a social worker. He's an accountant. I think he'd be perfectly happy if he wasn't an accountant. But by the time he started this journey, he was in his 30s and his 40s. So he was just like, all right, I guess the way I'm going to help people is through accounting. But he's really happy because he's truly helping them. And he's, he has developed some expertise. So pay attention to what you hate at your job, what you like at your job. Pay attention to what you seem good at and what you don't seem good at. So are you the person in the meeting who kind of sums everything up and and figures out what should happen next? Or are you terrible at that? Are you good at leading a large group or are you good at helping one or two other people kind of get back on track? Paying attention to those things. And for me, it's it's like being a shark. You got to keep moving forward, even if you're, I think it's much better to move forward in the wrong direction than to stay stuck waiting for the right direction. And the 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 big question i get is like what's the pace that really depends if you're 22 and you know you can go live with your parents if things get terrible i would run i would just if you have a small hunch that you're not even sure of just go whole hog try it quickly decide if it sucks and then try <laughs> something else if you're 50 and you have a mortgage and a family you might have to be a little slower as Jason Blummer says, you can never find you, you can never find too narrow a niche, meaning a narrow overlapping bundle of goods that are your unique value. You can never have too narrow a niche, but you can have too quick a niche. You could, you know, if you suddenly decide I'm going to be, you know, the marketing expert for forestry professionals, it's probably not a good idea to just say, okay, I'm all, you know, it might take you 10 years to build that clientele and that business. Right. So those are the tricky questions that like, how, what do I do? But the main thing is go aggressively for something and pay a ton of attention to what you like, what you hate, what people seem to think you're good at, what you, people seem to think you're not good at. Another thing I'd say is start a conversation with people you trust, a spouse, a friend, 
a coworker who's not, you're not that close with, but is a truth teller. Cause other people might see things in you that you don't see in yourself. Good yeah. and bad, by the way. <laughs> oh yes. Be prepared yes. to hear it all. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Well, Adam, thank you so much. Tell everyone where they can find you. About, let's talk about your podcast, your book. The easiest is just passioneconomy.com. You can, the podcast is there, the book's there. Um, and uh, yeah, passioneconomy.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. It was great. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining me on this episode of The Same 24 Hours. Remember to rate, review, and share this podcast. It really matters. I appreciate it. See you next time.